Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Pain Talk podcast. We're going to continue our conversation around trauma-informed care. So we were talking a bit about sort of the components uh, last week of trauma-informed care. And this is really about these three touch points, really, about creating a safe environment, building relationships and connections, and support and teaching emotional regulation. So those are the important parts. If I think about how it relates to that chronic pain patient, we think about that survival brain and that learning brain. So how we promote safety for patients who live with persistent pain. So safety in movement, safety in environment, safety in prescribing, and safe communication. So how can we help patients feel safe by the talking points that we use? And remember that all patients bring to that experience their own lived experience. So they all have a different story, different journey. They also have different habits and behaviors that they've used to get through their life. And these habits and behaviors of what have developed these resiliencies and these vulnerabilities in people's lives. So some of these habits and behaviors that they use to get through the moment may be very actually create more vulnerability for them. And I'm thinking about, you know, substance use disorder. Uh, yeah, so those are the big things. Or you can think about these habits and behaviors that are building uh, resiliency. And that includes that, uh, that breathing, right? So that could be something that could be really important. So we know that trauma comes in many forms and we all have our own story and how we've overcome those story. And I just think about my husband's experience around appendicitis. So he was a seven-year-old when he had an emergency surgery to remove his appendicitis. And lots of people have these stories, but he had presented to his family doctor in the emergency department a number of times. And by the time they did remove the appendix, he was quite sick. And here he is, a 62-year-old man at this stage, and the thing that stands out to him the most is seeing a Penrose drain. And for people that uh, went through medicine in my time, this was a common tool that was used to drain an infected appendix. But how that had impacted him is, is something that he doesn't talk about often, but often if he walks into a hospital, in particular to get blood work done, he will actually faint. And so they've learned to lay him down to do the blood work. And he hates that that happens. It bothers him. He sees this as sort of a, I don't know, a a measure of his manliness, I guess, or his toughness. But in fact, if we just look at it from the brain perspective, is that the brain has learned that that space has potential for harm. So the fact that he goes down is a really protective thing, right? That fight, flight, or freeze, that play dead mode. Because oftentimes when we experience a threat, that is overwhelming. Sometimes the response is that play dead mode. Yeah, so so we need to really have some empathy and some compassion for people, even when we see irrational behavior. And he'll say to me, because I often say to him, I said, well, you know, it's it's just about getting some blood. It's just a needle. He said, yeah, but, you know, just imagine yourself in a room full of spiders, right? So, you know, I've had my experiences around spiders, right? Or somebody's had their experience around dogs or cats, you know? What trauma-informed care is really about is, is keeping that open, open mind and that compassion that all patients deserve, right? Because anybody can have a history that uh, can impact uh, their memory and their experience. So we need that empathy and understanding. What is trauma-informed care and how is it defined? So trauma refers to experiences that cause intense physical and psychological stress reactions. 
So that experiences can refer to one event, it can refer to a series of events or a set of circumstances that an individual experiences as physically or emotionally harmful. So it has lasting adverse effects on the individual's physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. So isn't that interesting? So when we think of a pain experience, it's not just the physical experience, it is the social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Traumatic experiences change a person and can create this turmoil within the person and themselves as well in their life. So they can, I mean, I always think about, for those of us that watch a little bit of the U.S. news, I think about uh, Brett Kavanaugh, that hearing with the uh, physician who was a psychologist and how the trauma, uh, she was uh, uh, sexually uh, assaulted by, um, by Brett Kavanaugh or attempted sexually assaulted, I guess, if we listen to the hearing. But how it presented for her is that they were doing renovations in their house and they were adding an extra room and her requirements in that room did not make sense to the person that was helping her build the room, but also to her husband at the time and finally disclosed that this had happened to her when she was 17 and that Brett Kavanaugh, because all of this information came up and she got triggered by the fact that he was being put on the Supreme Court. I thought that was fascinating. She didn't really make the connection until someone actually, a psychologist, uh, because what happened then is that she was asked to, uh, her husband said, look, let's just go and and get some help for this. And, and this is how it all came out. So I thought that was fascinating. This is especially true if the events or the conditions happen in childhood. She was 17 at the time, so she was at that cusp, I guess. So the consequences of this, and hers is a great story, uh, are far-reaching and can be directly or indirectly linked to mental illness, to addiction, to chronic disease, to suicide, and overall a failure to thrive. So it can be so impactful. Trauma-informed care, if we look at what is trauma-informed care, well, it's an approach that acknowledges the existence and significance of trauma, both past and present, and how that plays into the health and recovery of a patient or a client. This is really important. So it's acknowledging being curious, you know, because sometimes this is disclosed in spaces that we're not even thinking about, right? So I think a really good rule of thumb is to assume that every interaction we have, you know, in the medical community, as well as outside the medical community, is that there is potential for a trauma event in that individual's life. So the interaction and the behaviors may not make sense to us as we're standing out. But from a person who's experienced trauma, who's really trying to protect themselves, they may have behaviors that just really don't make a lot of sense, right? So if I look at something like, you know, suturing a patient, especially if we're going to freeze that area for someone who's had significant trauma around a previous surgical procedure or, you know, a painful procedure, the fact that they're clenching on to the side rails, most times they don't even know they're doing it. That is really about protection and that is really about a previous experience. Uh, I know that at a very young age I got stitches and it was really traumatic because my mother couldn't come in first of all but I remember the doctor and nurse talking back and forth and I remember the physician saying to me I had this this drape over my eyes you know that if those stitches came out too early we're going to have to do this all over again and I remember they came out early and I actually literally taped them I refused to let my mother take me back to the hospital and it was just so terrifying and, and even as an adult recently I had to have uh, had a tick that got buried in my forearm and they had to remove that tick and I had to really work 
trying to keep myself calm, trying to do the breathing. And thank goodness at that time I had practiced the breathing enough that I was able to get to that uh, quiet place. Recognizing that we've all had different experiences in our life, different habits and behaviors that we've used to get through life to find that calm and connection and movement, right? So those resiliency and those vulnerability factors. The approach that we use includes keeping that patient safe. Remember, we talked about safety, safety, safe space, safe conversations, safe movement, safe prescribing. So you want to ensure the safety of the patient and the provider. So using supportive practices and environments to engage the patient. So emergency rooms generally are not a safe place, but a family doctor office could be safe in the sense that the patient understands the environment, right? We need to be aware of that. That's why often when you look at environments of psychologists, they're just, they kind of bring us to calm almost immediately, right? So you look at how there's calming music or calm, or even massage therapy, right? Calming you know, plants, greenery, pictures, things like that. So there's a lot of work that goes into this in the emergency department, though, trying to create a calm space. And I look at the areas that we use when patients are suffering from a mental distress crisis is that what is in that space? And often the colors can make a difference and be really interesting to talk to a therapist that uses color to bring calm and uh, connection. Being very focused on the patient if that patient is is open to that by working with them, um, but being sure that they're okay to work with you as well. And just recognizing that all humans are resilient, right? All of us are programmed for resiliency. And so we need to acknowledge that all of us have strengths. Yes, we have vulnerabilities, but we're all programmed for survival. So we all have uh, skills that build resiliency. What constitutes trauma? And my goodness, anything can be trauma related. So I think what's important is that it's whatever is meaningful to the patient as being traumatic. So it can be any experience. So it's it's often a subjective thing. So we often talk about adverse childhood experiences. We talk about developmental traumas, you know, where you might have a parent that's separated from the child. There's also intergenerational trauma. So individuals who are in environments where the adult, so the child, but the adult themselves has experienced trauma. So we think about our First Nations community in particular around the residential school situation. So adverse childhood experiences, um, they can be within the environment of a child, whether it's physical, psychological, sexual abuse, neglect, or witnessing violence in that home, living in poverty, living close to a war zone and crime. So when you look at some of the uh, areas in the Bronx, I mean, these kids are exposed to such trauma. I mean, gunshots and, oh my goodness, I can't imagine. But also living with somebody with a mental health or a substance use disorder. So in our family, my brother had schizophrenia. And I remember uh, he developed it at the age of 15. It got triggered by some substance use. But I remember when they were trying, this was many, many years ago. I'm actually part of a triplet and he was one of the triplets. And I just remember seeing this very able, athletic individual suddenly become very uh, unpredictable and very violent. And I remember the terror in that and my mom trying to manage that. It was so scary. Yeah, I, I just I just remember that. And so I do have some issues when I hear a lot of escalation. So that's something that I try and work on as well. 
So we call these adverse childhood experiences. And, I, and you know, I have been able to work through that. Uh, I've been actually very fortunate in my life to have a wonderful mother who would often promote, you know, these uh, self, you know, I remember the very first book I ever read that she promoted. And I thought at first, wow, this is crazy. But the power of positive thinking and trying to recognize the power we had to change our thinking. And um, I think that was something that, help build resiliency in my life. It doesn't mean that I still don't have lots of vulnerabilities like we all do. But what's beautiful is that if we're open to change and open to learning new things, I think that's where the beauty can happen. But there are some people that are not there. And so what we need to be able to do is to help them uh, get there. Because we all want people living with purpose and connection, living lives the way that they should be living them. So we also grew up very poor. My father died at a very young age, he was 29, he unfortunately took his own life. And I remember the trauma. So you talk about intergenerational trauma for my mother. My, I never learned until I was a teenager how he actually died. But what it did is left my mother destitute, destitute with uh, seven kids. And we were, I was the youngest at 15 months and we were a set of triplets. So the oldest was nine, nine, seven, five, and four. And I remember growing up as a kid that there was a lot of disruption for my older siblings and I knew that they were suffering, but I didn't understand why. I just knew that I was really afraid of them, afraid of my older brother because he had a lot of anger about what had happened. So my older brother and sister, uh, they knew my father and I think it was really hard for them. I didn't know my father. We just really kind of lived with the trauma of that, but we grew up very poor, but my mother was so resilient. It was crazy. Uh, just think about what she did. I mean, she was able to take care of us. She was determined to keep us together as a family. And she tried to bring normality to us. I mean, she would give us summer holidays. You know, we would go and she'd pack us all in the car. And this was before seatbelts. I could still see us in the back seat all over the place, including the front. Of course, we all fought over the front seat. But every summer we would go to these cabins in the woods. And I loved that as a kid. The other thing she always tried to do is give us a really good Christmas. She always felt bad about the lives that we had, but I don't think she really realized how enriching our lives were as well. And she always promoted education. So hence my nursing background as well as my medical background. At the age of 12, she went back and did her nursing. So she was a great example for us kids. But not to say that all of us experienced that uh, intergenerational trauma differently. And But we all came out on the other side. But it's quite amazing when you think about what she did. So growing up poor didn't necessarily mean that we would have lives that could not be fulfilled and could help us move forward in our life. But recognizing that some people are not in that situation. So poverty can be a huge thing. So these social determinants of health are factors and conditions that influence the health of populations. So we hear about this a lot, but it's so important. So they include income and social status, the social support networks, education. For us, education was promoted. My mother said, this is how you can take care of yourself if you're ever left alone. That was always the messaging. The kind of work that you do, the employment working conditions, social environments, physical environments, you know, personal health practices and coping skills, healthy child development, gender and culture. So those are the social determinants of health. 
Developmental trauma talks about harmful experiences that are happen during an individual's developing years. So this is in infancy, childhood, adolescence, and even young adulthood. So that could be a situation where someone would have experienced uh, sexual abuse. Developmental trauma can come in different forms. I'm not sure if being fatherless is a developmental trauma. I just remember my mom always... On Father's Day, to me, I thought that no families just didn't have fathers. They had grandfathers. So my grandfather really filled that role of my father. So I was very close to my grandfather. But every Father's Day, we would do Father's Day cards. So it was kind of inter interesting. So that intergenerational trauma is the aspect of historical trauma that and described as psychological and or emotional effects that are experienced by people who have long-term con uh, connection to trauma survivors. So these would be kids of the uh, First Nations communities that were sent to residential schools. So the, the intergenerational trauma there is well documented. And thank goodness we are finally recognizing and talking about this. So the memories of that trauma, as well as the coping strategies and the way people adapt to make room for the trauma, get passed from one generation to the next. So that's when we think about intergenerational. So how prevalent is trauma in our communities? Well, the CDC states statistics on abuse and violence in the United States are sobering. It's, rec it's recognized that between one in four children experience some sort of maltreatment. So 25% of kids experience some degree of trauma, whether it's physical, sexual, or emotional abuse. One in four women has experienced domestic violence. In addition, one in five women and one in 71 men have experienced rape at some point in their lives. 12% of these women and 30% of these men were younger than 10 years old when they were raped. Holy camoli. And I'll share this with you when I work in corrections. It's really these, these young men and women, um, the amount of uh, sexual abuse that has occurred in their lives is just damaging. It is unbelievable. Uh, so these statistics definitely uh, bode true, especially in populations that are really struggling. So what this tells us is that a very large number of people have experienced serious trauma at some point in their lives. We need to recognize that even as healthcare providers, as physicians, that when we examine patients, that can feel very invasive to somebody who has experienced trauma. Even the questioning that we can ask can also be very, very invasive. We have to be aware of that. So it's important as healthcare providers that we're mindful of the fact that so many people who come into healthcare and who interact with us have had a history of trauma. Remember, their journeys are different. And sometimes, even though we look the same, we kind of forget, you know, that people have had different journeys in life. If we look at the percentage of patients who are living with chronic pain who have experienced an adverse childhood experience or trauma, there are very high rates. And it depends on who you actually read or what paper you do. So if we look at back surgery in particular, so patients who have had surgery or not had surgery, it's recognized that up to 76% of, of patients with chronic low back pain report having had at least one trauma in their past. 66% of women with chronic headache report a past history of physical or sexual abuse. That is quite significant. So one particular study, which was a Danish study out of the Journal of Pain Research in March of 2018, looked at pain-related disability and looked at past experience of trauma versus no past experience of trauma. 
So the methods were a cross-sectional cohort study. And what was what happened is that the data was consecutively collected over a course of a year in patients with chronic non-malignant pain who were referred to a multidisciplinary pain rehab using a questionnaire assessing pain, pain-related disability, post-traumatic stress symptoms, anxiety, or depression. So they looked at over 682 chronic pain patients who were divided into three subgroups. So no trauma, 40%, trauma but no uh, post-traumatic uh, symptoms, uh, who had experienced trauma but no post-traumatic symptoms uh, was about 40% as well, who had trauma as well as post-traumatic symptoms was about 18.9%. So chronic pain patients who had post-traumatic symptoms reported significantly higher levels of pain intensity, pain-related disability, depression, and anxiety compared to chronic pain patients without a trauma and chronic pa patients without post-traumatic stress disorder. Moreover, post-traumatic stress significantly moderated the association between pain intensity and pain-related psychosocial disability, depression, and anxiety. So trauma does play a huge role. So what they found is that these results highlighted the importance of assessing post-traumatic stress symptoms in chronic pain patients and suggest that the post-traumatic stress has a significant influence on the association between pain intensity and more psychosocial aspects of the pain condition. Because chronic pain patients with comorbid uh, PTSS presented a more severe and complex symptom profile, and because the PTSS changes the association between pain and several, several outcomes, it's important to recognize the importance of this in, this in the chronic pain population. They really do promote screening and treating post-traumatic stress disorder, even in these patients who are living with chronic pain as well. So to see that as a separate condition. So when we look at trauma-informed approach, the three key elements of a trauma-informed approach uh, is first of all, realizing how often trauma occurs, recognizing how trauma affects all individuals involved, just how it affects e each of us individually, and responding by putting this knowledge into practice. So how we can improve somebody living, their life of somebody living with trauma through many different modalities. What are trauma-specific practices? So that readiness piece, remember, are they ready? So this is the motivational interviewing and the harm reduction piece. That's safety, right? So safe space, safe information, so safe communication, safe movement, as well as safe prescribing, as well as empowerment for patients. So readiness, safety, and empowerment. This is a really complex area of healthcare. Um, there are many different types of therapies that can be used, such as trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, skills development, sensory motor psychotherapy, somatic experiencing, neurosequential modeling. These are all evidence-based practices. So what it looks like is the first step is to recognize how common it is that we talked about. Understand that every patient may have experienced serious trauma in their life. We don't really need to question the patient about those experiences at the time, especially if um, they're not ready to do that, but just assume that they have had a history of trauma and be very respectful of that space. So this can mean many things, obviously. So we should try and explain why we're asking very sensitive questions. So I might say to the patient, I need to ask you about your sexual history so that I know what test I may need to do. 
So if you're asked taking a sexual history, you need to help explain that to the patient. It's the same thing when we're going to do a physical exam, but also seeing if the patient will give us permission to do that. So you could explain the physical exam, especially if it involves anything in the genitalia or the breast. So if someone is nervous, we can let them uh, bring in a trusted friend or a family member into the room. I'm just thinking about when I worked on the sexual assault nurse examiner, always wanted to have somebody with them, recognizing that they could also contaminate evidence, but they were open to that. It really depended on what we needed to do to collect the evidence for that patient in, in, in case they did want to come back to prosecute uh, their perpetrator. So I've had many female patients hold somebody's hand during a pelvic exam. I always let someone be there if they're comfortable. We can also give them permission to tell us to stop anytime that they want us to stop. Uh, they can just say the word stop. Uh, if someone refuses outright to have a certain exam or test, or if they're upset about something like having a vaccination, we can respond with compassion and work with them rather than attempting to force them or allowing ourselves to become more annoyed with them. And that sometimes can happen because when you're trying to get a test done, so somebody that comes in with genital pain, I need to examine them. But if I'm not understanding the, the um, resistance to that exam and not working with them. So I always try and, and have that conversation before we do the exam, whether it's a male or female, to say to them that I just want to look. I don't want to hurt them. I just want to make sure that we're getting the right treatment. Okay, so we're going to stop there. That's a lot of information. And my hope is that we can get an expert in this area. I just think the correlation between the chronic pain population as well as trauma-informed care, we can learn so much from the principles and practices of trauma-informed care in how we help our chronic pain populations with complex symptoms. And that includes those multiple unexplained symptoms, uh, that central sensitization piece, how we can use trauma-informed care to empower our patients because what we want them to do is to live with purpose and connection. So how do we get them moving without flaring up? How do we get them sleeping without feeling hungover in the morning? And how do we get them living a life of purpose and connection so that they're staying connected to the people and things that matter in their life, right? That's what we really want to see happen. So we'll end it today. Have a great safe week. Take care of each other and we'll end it for now. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.